So the first time that I had the suicidal thoughts was in the seventh grade. I, I can recall at one point holding the gun, having a gun and holding it to my head and just wanting to end it right then. Like I was just yelling at myself in the mirror to just do it. Just, And I, I felt what that steel felt like against my skin. It was very cold. My drug use just progressed and progressed and I actually got using so much that I didn't even want of anything anymore. It didn't, it didn't even matter, you know, life or death. It, I remember getting woken up by a phone call from my mother and she was just screaming on the phone that he's gone, he's gone. And my oldest brother had passed away in a car accident that night before. Um, he was still in active addiction. He had found sober time, he had some years clean and, and was with the Lord and he relapsed and he went back into the life and uh, it ultimately took his life. I spent the next year on unemployment and spending my whole unemployment checks on drugs and alcohol and uh, sometimes I just fall on the ground crying. I was an emotional, I'd say a roller coaster, it was more like an emotional wreck. It was one year later, it was March 23rd, 2013. I was preparing for his anniversary and I ended up on a three-day binge. I was just drinking nonstop from the time I got up to went to bed, eating pills. March 26th, I woke up. I hadn't started drinking yet. I was under the carport. I started having a conversation, which I now realize was with, with God. At the moment, I wasn't really sure. I was just kind of thinking, but it was a lot about uh, a lot of anger, pent-up anger I had with God. I knew he existed. I just, he, I didn't have any kind of relationship with him. He wasn't for me. He was for other people. I remember being very angry. Like, how could you kill my brother? How could you take my brother? And I was blaming God for it. And God, in this time, he used that time to replay in my head my brother's voice for years of my brother just preaching the word and God was saying I, I didn't take your brother I loved your brother very much and I gave him every opportunity to turn I called my mom she had been saved and sober 41 years herself and I told her everything going on she she saw God all over it I didn't know what was happening at the time but she asked if I wanted to pray and for the first time in my life since I was since I was young I said yes um, I immediately knew something had happened. I didn't know what or exactly what it was, but I knew it was Jesus and I knew it was big and found a local church. That Sunday I went for the first time in years, walking back in and something was a little strange to me. Something was just different and I'm looking and it took me a minute to realize it was people smiling. Everywhere I looked, there was just hundreds of smiles. I was realizing that these people must have felt what I felt also. They had a similar experience with God. And it was just so awesome. And I, I was just crying my eyes out in front of hundreds of strangers. I'm sober for six days, and I just remember thanking God in that moment that I was home, that He finally got to me. And it has been absolutely incredible ever since. Um, God's bringing me in there, and now also being able to lead the Celebrate Recovery here at Mission Hill Church on Friday nights. And I get to just experience other people getting that same freedom, them coming, them having their coming to Jesus moments. And, and watching their faces light up and watching people set down decades of drug addiction right at the feet of Jesus when he steps into their life. And it's just an absolutely incredible, incredible time. And I thank him every day for my sobriety, but I just thank God for life now. I thank God I have the opportunity to live. Good morning, church. Welcome to worship. To those of you online, welcome to all of you. Take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Who's going to call the shots? That's the question we're answering today. And I would suggest that is the most important question 
you'll ever answer in your life. Who's going to call the shots? Everything in our society tells you that you should call the shots, that you're number one, that you're the master of your fate, that if it's going to be, it's up to me. And yet everything in God's Word tells us a different story. Sometimes scriptural truth leads us to hard conversations. This is one of those moments. This passage from Romans can be challenging to teach and equally challenging to hear. So I want you to remember the context. This is written by the apostle named Paul. He begins by saying that his descriptor in life, his identity is that he is a slave to Christ. In other words, as he'll say in much of his writings throughout the New Testament, he is in Christ. That's his identity. And really, today we're going to be talking about what defines you. What is your identity? Is it enough to say that you are simply in Christ? But then he also says he's been sent out. So he's got a message to share. And you would expect every time you come into a gathering like this, every time you tune into a worship service at any of our campuses, you would assume that there's a a message to be shared. And then he says that I've I've been set apart. He, He describes himself as one who is different from everything else that the world has to offer. And that all goes back to who he is being in Christ. He writes this from the city of Corinth. Now, Corinth was known as a wicked city. If you were to think of it today, it could be called Sin City. So so think of one of those places, uh, maybe like um, Las Vegas in some areas, or or maybe like some aspects of New Orleans in the French Quarter, or or maybe some of the darker places that you've been in this world. That's where he was riding from, and he was riding to the New York City of that day. He was riding to Rome, uh, the place where everything that happened in the world would ultimately originate. And it's in that context that he gives us this message, Um, a message that has an overarching purpose. And the, the purpose is to let us know that if we are to be righteous, that's going to happen as a result of our faith. Theme verses in Romans are verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. Look at this again. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the theme of this book of the Bible, Romans And really the theme of what should be every time you gather as Christ followers in the church is the gospel. So what is the gospel? He he lays that out in the verse we just read. The gospel is the good news from God about Jesus that has great power for everyone who believes. 
And it shows us the simple way to be right with God. The very nature of gospel assumes that we need to be made right with God. That that's what he wants. Let me take you way back in history to illustrate that. In the beginning, God created everything that was. In, in fact, much of your life is going to be determined based on whether or not you believe those first four words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. So when God created all that, that was, he, he then began to create mankind. And as God created mankind, he did so differently than he did so all the other aspects of creation. He created mankind for the purpose of fellowship and relationship with him. But what we know from reading God's word in Genesis is that our great-grandparents sinned. And when sin entered this world, it broke the relationship with God. So from the second chapter of Genesis all the way through the end of the Bible, we have a story about what it takes to be made again right with God. What it takes for that relationship with God to be restored, to be renewed. God wants that right relationship, but the problem is, even though God has revealed himself to everyone, and that's what Romans 1 says, everyone knows in a general revelation about God, the reality is everyone is also turned away from God. The Bible tells us that we're all sinners, and that we've all fallen short of God's plan, his design. And so you've got this problem. You could call it a conundrum. You've got a God who loves everybody, who wants to be right with everybody. But you've got everybody who's chosen <laughs> to not be right with God. And so the choice becomes, who's going to call the shots in your life to make you right with God? This is a big conversation, so before we go any further, I'd like us to pause and to have a word of prayer. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, we want to say thank you. This is the day, Lord, that you've made. We rejoice, and, and we're glad because you've allowed us to gather together, whether that be here at our central campus or at Six Mile or Lake Carroll or whether that be online, on the radio, Lord, you would allow us to tune in to hear from you, and, and for that we're grateful. So our prayer is simple, Lord, speak. Give us what we need that we don't have. Teach us what we've not learned that we need to know. Make us more like you. God, give us sensitivity to your truth today. Lord, I pray that as I go forward, my words would be your words. My thoughts would be your thoughts, and that my way would not get in the way. And then, Lord, as a result, I pray that ultimately the greatest miracle that ever happens could happen here today, that someone would begin to know you as their personal Savior, as the one who calls the shots. So thank you, Lord. We commit this time to you, even as we ask all of this again in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. Let's read the scriptures. For although they knew God, 
they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. In this first verse, you see the problem that's going to be addressed. The problem is, what do we do about a dark heart? A dark heart that can take place even with a knowledge of God. My little girl is a tremendous witness. She wants everyone she comes in contact with to know about Jesus. But it's occurred to me that we've, we've had to clarify some things with her recently because as she comes in contact with people, she asks a simple question. She'll say this, do you know Jesus? And, and here in our culture, do you know what most people say? Yes. They know Jesus, or at least they know about Jesus. They're not responding in a way we might on a Sunday morning in church where we think about knowing Jesus intimately and letting him call the shots in our life. They're talking about a head knowledge. So we've begun to explain that to Anaya. Think about different ways we can ask that question. Paul's addressing here that it's possible for you to have head knowledge and yet not submit control of your life to God. So how does that look? Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Two words, by the way, that make up one word. You know the one word that comes from those two words? Sophomore. When you think of a, a sophomore in the educational system, you know what those two, that one word means? It, it comes from the word Sophia, wisdom, and moron, which means fool. So a sophomore is one who's a wise fool. And, and that's what Paul is saying here. They walk around looking like wise fools. Why? Look at verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now here's the irony. What Paul's describing here is a bad exchange. Have you ever made a bad exchange? Sure you have. Anytime you've spent money on something that you ultimately decide that was not worth it, <laughs> that's a bad exchange. And, and so he's describing here a bad exchange. Why? Because he's saying we exchange God's glory for our guilt. While God wants to exchange our guilt for his grace, we've messed up the exchange God created us in His image. We have God stamped all over us. But what He's describing here is because of sin in our lives, we make a foolish exchange. And we say, no, thank you, God. We would rather do it our way. We would rather have things our way. As a result, our guilt overshadows God's glory. And we're still in need of His grace. You're going to see that word exchange three times in these few verses we read. I would encourage you just to circle it or underline it in scriptures or highlight it because it's going to remind you that, that we have an opportunity to make a bad exchange. And what happens as a result of the exchange? Look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them up. Say gave them up. 
in the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Last week we learned that that phrase, gave them up, literally means to remove restraint. So I said, imagine I were holding a Waterford crystal vase, a very expensive vase, and I was just letting you admire it. But then I removed my hands from it. I removed the restraints. What would happen? Crash! It would fall to the ground and we would have hundreds of Waterford crystal pieces. When you remove restraints, sometimes there results destruction. And so the Bible here says that God removed the restraints. He gave them up. Look at verse 25. Why? Because they exchanged the truth of God about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who's blessed forever. Amen. So he's saying God allows us to have our own way. If you're a parent or a grandparent, you've practiced this. You've said, all right, kids, have it your way. Let's see how this works out for you. Usually we do that in a safe enough environment where they might learn a lesson but not get mortally harmed. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to uh, dishonorable passions. And then he begins to describe those. For their women exchanged, there it is again, natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. What is he referring to? Today in our society, we would call this lesbianism. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relationships with women and were consumed with passions for one another. What do we call that today? Homosexuality. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, there it is again, God gave them up. Say God gave them up. To a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. Uh, They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, But they give approval to those who practice them. Can can you begin to see why I say the most important question you're going to ever answer in life is, who's going to call the shots? Who's going to make the decisions in your life of what can and can't be done? What should and should not be done? Another way of saying this, who or what is going to be worshipped? As God in your life. You see, what Paul's really dealing with here is the issue of worship. You were created for worship. Remember, back in the garden, you were created to talk to God, to walk with God. That's a void in your life that can only be met by the one true God. But because of sin in our life, we're going to fill that void. So if we're not worshiping God, if we're not letting Him call the shots, there are other things that call the shots in our life. 
What are some of those things? Well, sometimes just our, our opinions, the logic of our mind calls the shots. We do something because we decide it's right. Sometimes our emotions call the shots. We do something because it feels right. Sometimes we let the situation or the circumstance call the shot. What do we call that? Situational ethics. And so we say, well, that's not right all the time, but maybe if you're in this setting, it's okay. And anytime we're doing that, we're making a bad exchange. Because God wants to call the shots in your life. Look at those three exchanges they made. First of all, they exchanged the glory of God. Then they exchanged the truth of God. Then they exchanged the ways of God. They did things their way. What do all of these have in common? They're exchanging what they want for what God desires. So the root of the problem here is idolatry. Are there idols in your life? Idols that are calling the shots that God wants to call in your life? Last week I told you as we walked through this passage that Paul was describing an aversion to the truth. They didn't want the truth, so they suppressed it. That aversion to the truth led to a diversion from the truth. So they stopped listening to the truth because they suppressed it. And then as a result, there was a perversion of the truth. They started doing what they wanted to do. Another way we describe this is he said people ignored God. And then they began to imitate God. They called their own shots. And then as a result, they insulted God. So I, I want to ask you a question. It's kind of similar to who's calling the shots in your, your life. But, but here's a question to help you think about that. Have you rejected the God who made you? And replaced him with a God of your own making? Is there something else that you've made the God in your life? That you've made an idol? Maybe it's family. Your children. Maybe it's your career. Your status in life. Maybe it's your income. Maybe it's what other people think about you. What Paul's trying to describe here is that when we displace or replace God in our life, it takes us down a dark path. Remember, he says their minds have become dark, and it results in detrimental consequences in our life. That's why we need the gospel. That's why what we do here is so important, because the world is a dark place. And we need the light and the love of Jesus Christ. I heard about this young man that had decided he was going to marry the girl of his dreams. So he went to a diamond shop and the jeweler said, I'm going to pick out the best diamond. And he, and he, he took a few diamonds into the palm of his hand and he held one diamond up to the light. And the guy looked at it and he kind of shook his head. He held an, another diamond up and he kind of shook his head. And he held another diamond up and he kind of shook his head. And, and the jeweler decided, I need to change my approach. And so he put those diamonds down and and he took that glass counter there in the jewelry store and he spread a black velvet cloth across the glass counter. And then he took a pair of tweezers and he proceeded to pick up those same diamonds. And he 
came to that first diamond. And when that diamond on that black cloth began to catch the light of the room and, and began to sparkle and, and begin to shine, uh, uh, that young man, he just got a big smile on his face and he said, yes, I knew I would recognize it when I see it. He was looking at the same stone he had seen a moment before. But the darkness around it made it seem so much brighter. Sometimes people get frustrated when they come to church and we talk about sinfulness. Or they read the Bible and they hear sin outlined. What I, I want you to understand, the purpose of this passage the description of the darkness of this world is so that you can see the significance of the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that you can see how much we all need the gospel. So with that in mind, let's glance into the darkness, okay? We're not going to gaze, but we're going to glance. G.K. Chesterton said, when people stop believing in God... They don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. So Paul said, they've rejected the truth about God. They've suppressed the truth. And they've done their own thing. Listen again to the sin list. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Wow! That's a dark list. And every one of us can see ourselves Somewhere in that list. I want to remind you how we began this discussion. We're all sinners. This is a, not an exhaustive list of sin, but it's a pretty thorough list. And as you look at a list like this, you see things that are struggles in your life. Paul's describing unrepentant sinfulness where you go through life kind of thumbing your nose at God. You've kind of heard even in Jonathan's story at the beginning how it's easy to get to that place where you just decide you're the master of your fate. You're going to do what you want to do. You'll roll with the punches. You'll take the punches because at least you're in charge. And that's what a lot of us do. And this list is the result of that decision. It's a life intent on living by our desires rather than God's design. It's not surprising that he begins this list with homosexuality. 
It's not surprising because really our, our sexuality was at the core of that original design of God. Remember what happened in the garden? God made everything. And then he took from the dust and he scooped out the dirt and he made Adam, mankind. And he said, all right, go out there and conquer this brave new world. But Adam looked around and he's like, man, I'm lonely. I need somebody else. And that giraffe, man, that thing is way too tall. And, and, and that gorilla, that thing is way too hairy. And, and that bird, will, I mean, it just keeps flying away. And, and so God says, good point. Let me make for you the perfect compliment, the helpmate. So he gives Adam some anesthesia. And he takes from Adam's side his rib. And he creates Eve, his good thing, the prime rib. Not from Adam's foot so that he would trample over her. Not from Adam's skull so that she might manipulate him, but from Adam's side so that they'd be hand in hand, side by side, complimenting one another. And there they were in the garden. And when Adam woke up and Eve woke up, you know what Adam said? Whoa, man. This is very, very good. That's God's design. So if we're beginning to talk about how do you pervert, how do you delude, how do you complicate God's design, it makes sense that a sin list begins with homosexuality. And yet, it's important to note that he doesn't stop at that sin, does he? He gives a lot of sins on that list. Sins that we can all relate to, regardless of anything else in our life. Yet among Christ's followers today, there seems to be disagreement about this particular sin and about sexual sin in general. So since we're just walking through the passage of Scripture, I want to take a few moments and address this. A few things you need to understand about a biblical worldview of homosexuality. Number one, the Bible is clear. The practice of homosexuality is wrong. The Bible clearly calls that sin. It would be incorrect and unwise to assume, as some people do today, that God doesn't care about this sin that what Paul refers to here is outdated or doesn't take into practice the culture of our day. In fact, remember to whom Paul was writing, the church in Rome. What do we know about Rome? Even in Paul's day, many of the Roman emperors were practicing homosexuals. This was not something foreign to the culture of that day. Paul refers to lesbianism because that was not as common in that day. But that male practice of homosexuality, man, it was. And that God's Word clearly calls that sin. Because the Bible calls homosexuality sin, it would also be wrong to excuse this or any other sin by claiming, I was just born this way. Think about that for a moment. Do I believe that most people who struggle with homosexual attraction 
do have some sense that they've always felt that way. That seems to be the case with people I've talked to. But I also recognize that about other sin issues in our life. There's a lot of us that are born with a propensity or a proclivity to certain sins. Whether it be alcoholism or other addictions. Whether it just be that sexual attraction in general to a, a person of the opposite sex. Can you imagine if, if I walked into my wife, Kimberly, after 29 years of marriage and said, baby, I'm, I'm sorry that I keep cheating with these other women, but I'm just telling you, that's the way I was born. I'm just, I'm constantly attracted to other women. Yeah, I think she would take a baseball bat and beat me upside of the head. I, I don't think that would be Okay, the reality is you are born as a sinner. That's what we all have in common. But that, dear friends, is why we must be born again. That's why we need the hope of the gospel. Because of Jesus, we can be born again. We can be free of these chains of sin. You may have been born with innate anger or innate susceptibility to addictive behaviors or innate sexual desire. But in God's economy, desire never trumps His design. And when you elevate your desires above God's design, you always do so at your own detriment. That's why Paul would say, even to speaking of the men in homosexuality, and they did so even at the expense of their own punishment. I want to remind you of something, though. Desire in itself is not sin. You do realize that, right? We have these temptations we battle. And I, I've come to believe that even in this area, uh, there are people that, that struggle with uh, desire, men for other women, women for other men than their spouses. There are people who struggle with desire that is called same-sex attraction. So what do you do with that desire? The half-brother of Jesus spoke to this in James. Listen to verse 14 of chapter 1. But each person's tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Desire becomes sin when I act on that desire. That's why, again, as I talk to folks who struggle with same-sex attraction, often there are many of them who say, I have prayed that God would just take away this desire. When I talk to folks who struggle with addictive behaviors toward alcoholism or drugs, I know many who would say, I've prayed that God would just take away this desire. And that's not always the way it works. But that desire can't trump God's design. It's not the natural way. What we know from Scripture is that any sexual sin that goes against God's plan of one man and one woman together in a marriage relationship, any sexual sin outside of that is wrong and against the will of God. You don't get to call the shots just based on how you feel. But there's a second truth. 
The Bible's also clear that homosexuality is not an unpardonable sin. How do I know that? Well, listen to the author of Romans chapter 1 as he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You know what that tells me? There's no sin I can commit that's unpardonable as long as I acknowledge that Jesus is the one who calls the shots in my life. I repent of that sin. I agree with him about that sinfulness. And I seek his help in turning from that sin. If this is not true, why would Paul, again the same writer, say in 1 Timothy chapter 1, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Paul was saying, I want you to understand something. Sin will separate you from God. Sin will necessitate the wrath of God in your life. And by the way, I'm the worst sinner I know. And I'll, I'll say that too. I, I'm the worst sinner I know. And you know, this isn't a counseling session, although probably most of us could use some therapy. Let me help you today. If you want to, maybe let's just say that together. I'm the worst sinner I know. I'm the worst sinner I know. You see, when you recognize that, you begin to understand what Paul is doing here. In this list alone, he's covering a host of sin issues. He shows what it's like when God removes restraint. But you know that, right? Man, I, I look at choices I've made in specific areas of my life, and the first time I made that choice... Man, it was hard. It was like, oh, I don't know if I can take this step. I don't know if I can do it. Yeah, I'm going to do it. And guess what? When I make that sinful choice, when I take that step, I notice something. It's not as hard to do it the next time. It's not as hard to do it the next time. Why? God gives us up. He removes restraint. And then we just go into a slippery slope of sin. You've done this. We're mostly adults gathered here. You know this truth, right? That you, you sin in one way and then before you know it, you sin in another way to cover it up. And then before you know it, you got a whole host of sins in your life. And so you've got a list like this. Look again at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relationships for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Sexual sins, 
But he doesn't stop there. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, societal sins. Well, what causes a person in, 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 with race, racist ideology to go into a store and, and to murder people in a senseless fashion? It's sin. It's societal sin. Then he says they're gossips and slanders and haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. What is this? this is your social sins. Sin affects our character, our conduct, and our conversation. It even affects our companionship. It affects and it infects every area of our life. So I'm going to ask you again. Where are you on that list? None of these by themselves are unpardonable sins. But all of these are symptoms of the unpardonable sin. Which is rejecting God and replacing His rule with yours. You decide you're calling the shots. What Paul's describing here is something that is a theological principle it's called total depravity. Without Jesus, you and I are totally depraved. That's why, though it's not popular, when you hear someone say, at our core, we're all good. No, we're not. At our core, our heart is exceedingly wicked. Total depravity doesn't mean everything we do is ever sinful. It means every part of our being, from head to toe, is infected with sin. Our minds are darkened. Our hearts become shameful. Our bodies are degraded. Our lives then are destroyed. And that, my friend, is why we need the gospel. It's the power of God to everybody for righteousness. And when we push aside God's glory, we're overcome with our guilt, whatever our sin. Rosaria Butterfield was a practicing lesbian. She was the professor of literature at, and women's studies at Syracuse University. But in her story, she says that Romans chapter 1 brought her to Christ. It began in an argument with a pastor. She was arguing about the religious right and their views on homosexuality. But the pastor who led her to Christ refused at first to argue about lesbianism. He told her that according to Romans 1, the real issue was who got to call the shots in her life. How she defined herself. How she was going to seek fulfillment. So Romans 1, Rosaria says, revealed my heart to me. Romans 1 showed me that we all go through what Eve went through in the garden. We all ask. Who gets to declare what is good? What is the Lord in my life? My desire or the Word of God? She said that means repentance for the gay and lesbian person looks fundamentally the same as it does for the straight or the religious person. God, I'm sorry for elevating my desires over your will. I'm sorry for attempting to define my identity apart from your design for me. I'm sorry for taking on myself the authority to declare what's good. I'm sorry for seeking satisfaction and self-fulfillment rather than from giving glory to you. I recognize that Jesus is Lord 
and I turn over control to him. That's what repentance looks like. Whether you're gay or straight or rich or poor or young or old or Jew or Gentile or black or white, we all come to Jesus in the same way. The core sin for all of us is this desire to play God, to call the shots in our life. And so repentance looks the same for all of us, as does salvation. And here's the good news. This gospel that we're talking about, this Jesus that we're getting to know, he came to save all sinners. It matters not what kind of sinner you are. It matters what kind of Savior he is. And oh, what a Savior he is. Oh, what a Savior he is. So who's going to call the shots in your life? See, the, the only answer to our total depravity is the complete righteousness of Christ. So, so let me remind you of what we've been learning and, and, and what you can express even through these little bracelets. The truth is every person, every man, every woman, regardless of these desires with which you have in your mind and in your heart, we're all in the same situation. We're all sinners. And that sin separates us from God. And the truth is, no matter how good we are, if you put that sin on a scale, it's always going to tip against our favor. Our sin is always going to outweigh our goodness. But God, our God is the King of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. And if anybody can make a way for you, He can. If anybody's worthy to call the shots, He is. And He did. God demonstrates his love for us, even though we're sinners. Christ went to that cross, and he died for us. And when he died on the cross, God poured out his anger for your sin on Jesus. So now... You just got to decide if you're going to let Jesus call the shots. If you're going to trust him. Would you bow your head with me? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I, I want you to begin to contemplate what God's saying to you. Christ follower. Are there some sins that you need to confess? Have you been proclaiming to be a follower of Christ? And yet, your life is characterized by doing things your way, by calling your own shots. If so, there's only one right course, and that's the confession of your sin and repentance. Maybe you just need to begin to do that. You know you've got that relationship with Christ. 
but you've turned aside. You, you, you've begun to call some of your own shots. Maybe there's some of those specific sins in this list that you are guilty of. It's so much easier to, to look down our sinful noses at other people's sins. It's a little more challenging when we recognize I'm the worst sinner I know. Maybe you just want to come and you want to just kneel here kind of at the front of this room and just begin to pray and ask God to give you a pursuit of holiness in your life. Maybe there are people in your life that are gripped by some of these areas of sin. And maybe they've let things in their life control them. And you just want to come and pray for them. But there's others of you, you've never begun a relationship with Christ. You've never taken that step to surrender control of your life to Jesus. You're, you've never let him call the shots. If that's, if that's you, I, I want to I give you an opportunity to rectify that right now. And you don't need me or my words or my prayer, but I certainly can help guide you. Maybe you'd pray a prayer like this. Maybe you'd say, Dear Jesus... I know I need you. I need to be saved. I need to let you call the shots. And I've not done that. So I repent. I, I turn from my way. I turn to you. I believe you died for me, Jesus. And I believe you're alive today. You are God. And I will follow you. From now on. I'll tell him thank you. If that's the desire of your heart, in just a moment, I'm going to be standing down front. Other pastors from our church are going to be standing here. I want to invite you to step out of your seat and to come tell me, Pastor, today I prayed that prayer. I began that relationship with Christ. Maybe you're a Christ follower and you have other prayer needs, other things you want to deal with today. You come. So, Father, I thank you that we can commit this time to you knowing that in spite of our sin, your grace is greater. Thank you. For that great exchange, your grace greater than all our sin. In Jesus' name. Let's stand together. You come.